Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's me, Sarah Strumming of The Cognitive Canine, and this is called Dog Radio, a podcast about all things dog sports and dog training. Join me as I explore my cases and considerations regarding the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. I hope you enjoy it. This keeps coming up, so I'm ready to talk about it today. Um, over on patreon.com slash cogdogradio, I have my patrons. And patrons are people who pay uh, just a tiny bit of money, $4 a month, to be a part of that community. And I keep asking them what they want me to talk about. And they give me these wonderful, varied responses. And then also, this topic always comes up in some form or another. So we're going to talk about it today, and I'm going to call it FOMO, which is fear of missing out, which is kind of a silly acronym in um, kind of the current vernacular. So what it is is dogs that can't wait their turn. So they're screaming in the crate before they get to run agility, or maybe they're screaming in a crate while you're trying to train another dog, or maybe they're absolutely losing their minds while you prepare your things to train. Um, all variations on that theme are, are going to be covered. So understand, first of all, that when people are asking me this, they're not asking me how to prepare their puppies who don't know anything about sports. They're asking me how to fix their adult dogs who have this problem. And so if you have a puppy that does not know anything about sports yet, Please take this information to heart because the way to have a dog who can wait their turn, whether you have a dog that you're starting from scratch with or a dog that already has this problem is the same. It's just harder when they already have the problem. So think about it as a foundational skill and a very important one. All right. Understand this is happening because dogs like the thing that they get to do. That's actually good news. So if they don't like the thing, they can wait for the thing, right? Um, If they didn't really, really want to do the training, then they wouldn't be coming unglued while they had to wait for the training. So this is a normal side effect of the dog being really into the game. And the reason it happens to people um, kind of suddenly, like, you know, their last dog was fine with this, but now this dog is crazy, is usually because they learned about training and they they got better at it. And their other dog maybe muddled through some confusion, maybe just didn't care, didn't have as big of feelings as this new dog. For whatever reason, your other dog was fine with waiting and this dog is not. Expect them to not be fine with it rather than the other way around and teach them the things I'm going to talk about now. When you wait for this to become a problem, so your dog learns how fun agility is before they learn how to wait quietly in a crate, you have to backpedal to be able to fix it, which means that you might actually have to stop doing agility for a minute to fix it. And that makes people really upset when I tell them they have to do that. So um, if you're listening and your dog already has this problem, understand that this is a missing foundational piece that you're going to have to back up and train. Um, 
And the answer is always the same as everything else. So what people say is they go, I've tried covering the crate. I've tried putting food in the crate. I've tried giving the dog a Kong. I've tried giving the dog a raw bone, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And none of that, that's all trying to throw band-aids at the problem. That's not actually fixing the real problem. And that's because you're not splitting. You're putting the dog right in the context it can't handle. And you're saying, here's a pacifier. And the dog is saying, you know, F your pacifier, because what I want is to play the game. So the answer is always split. And what I mean by that is find the place where the dog can be successful and build from there. And sometimes this feels like it will never work to people, but this is the only thing that does. So you need to split by never asking them to do something that they cannot do. You guys, if your dog is screaming and barking and biting the bars and, you know, whatever form of FOMO you have on your hands, he's telling you in very clear language that you have asked him to do something he's incapable of doing. And that is not fair. And I don't care how quote unquote positive of a dog trainer you are. You are not being positive if you ask your dog to do things that he is simply incapable of doing. That's setting him up for failure and it's not fair to you or him. So don't ask them for, don't ask them to wait. You know, if you decide to work on this, you will not be asking them to wait in contexts where they cannot wait for basically until you know they can. And that feels really difficult to people. They go, I don't understand how they can ever learn it if I'm never putting them in this situation. And it might just be a trust me moment, but understand that your problems are not fixed in context. You usually have to remove them from the problematic context so that you can find the behaviors that you want to reinforce. Because if you just put the dog in the crate ringside and the dog is quivering and screaming before you even begin, you don't have anything to reinforce, which means that you started way too far down the line. You didn't split, essentially. So this is going to be my basic process um, for doing this. I'm going to give you an outline. And I'm going to give you the caveat that it's never this simple, right? So I'm going to give you the outline. But I want you to understand that sometimes I help people with this privately. Sometimes I help them with it in the Fix It online course, uh, which is running the, in the December term for Fancy Dog Sports Academy because it is always more complicated than what I'm going to tell you. But if you're starting with a puppy who doesn't know anything about sports, it will go pretty easy and it will follow this essentially. So the first thing is that you need to condition the concept that crate equals rest. So I talked about this in my five behaviors podcast, uh, five essential sport dog behaviors, because I think it's really, really important for our dogs to know that when they're in a crate with the door closed, that's time for sleeping. And you do this when they're puppies by saying, oh, you're tired. Okay. That's crate time. Rather than shoving your puppy in a crate as it conveniences you, put them in there only when they're tired and they will learn that the crate is a place for resting. That's a very important piece. If you're going to be crating them in any sport context, a lot of people don't even crate their dogs at home. Their dog has no idea how to be created in a sport context at all, and they're not created much 
in, in real life either. So if crating is going to be a big part of your sport career, which it is for most of our dogs, it's important to teach them that the crate equals rest at home and then in the car and then other places. So, and then I started out, I teach them that the crate is a place to rest, even if I'm doing other things by doing, by first doing things that they don't want anything to do with. So first I'll just sit next to the crate and they're in it and I'm just scrolling my phone or reading a book or doing some work on my laptop. Um, and then I'll progress that to something that is a little more action-y. So maybe I'm folding laundry. So I might have to move to get laundry out to put it on a thing and then fold it. So boring chores like laundry, dishes, things like that, where you're just there occupied in another task and the tired puppy or adult dog is in the crate. And then you just do progressively more interesting things while they're waiting in the crate. And again, I'm going to encourage you to do this when they're tired so it's easy for them. That doesn't mean that they have to be forever. It means that you're teaching them how to feel in the crate right now. And you want to set yourself up for the best success that you possibly can. So I'm going to do progressively more interesting things like something that requires me to leave the room and come back in. So maybe now my laundry's folded and I'm going to carry it kind of pile by pile into the bedroom to put it away. Um, you know, or maybe I'm just kind of bustling around the house, cleaning and decluttering and, you know, whatever else. And the dog is in the crate and they're free to watch me go by, but nothing exciting is happening. And I'm going to progress to gathering stuff into a pile or a bag and then progress from there to gathering training stuff into a pile or a bag. And so you, you catch what I'm asking you to do, right? So I'm saying in very thin layers, pile up the dog's ability to do this waiting task that you're asking them to do. So then we need to involve other dogs because that's usually the tipping point. So a lot of people are saying, yeah, that's great, Sarah. My dog can do all of that. But as soon as there's another dog, even in the room, in my house, we have a problem. That's because other dogs, first of all, if it's your dog's just in your house causing a problem, that's because your puppy has learned that the other dogs are a really fun game. So you may be asking them to do something they're not able to do and you need to pay attention to that. How do you know? Because they can't do it. Um... So the first thing I do is you're going to wait while another dog waits. So I'm going to station my adult dog and I'm going to have my puppy in a crate nearby. And we're both just going to periodically eat food for hanging out. When they can do that pretty easily, then I'm going to release the other dog off their station, feed them, feed the puppy, ask the dog to station again. So now we're doing little tiny bits of movement that the puppy is learning to tolerate. And then maybe my other dog does some boring stuff like positions, sit down, stand for food in place on a platform probably. And then just the other dog does progressively more fun work. And that's if I'm training alone with my two dogs, I will frequently take my puppies out or my young dogs out and station them and just feed them for hanging out on their station while another dog is training. And I'll be as far away from the other dog training as I need to be for my dog to be successful. And so on and so on. And we're just going to build it up until the dog can actually be in a crate while another dog is truly working the sport that my young dog likes to do. And if this sounds impossible, 
it's because in your mind, you're going to lump. You're going to jump to a step where the, that the dog can't do it. You're not splitting finely enough. What often separates trainers into kind of, you know, really excellent high-level trainers and then maybe more middle-of-the-road trainers is often this creativity in splitting. So being able to say, okay, in this scenario, my dog can't do this. And in this other scenario, he can. Can you identify all of the steps in between and hit each of those steps or not, right? And if you can identify those things, then you're going to be able to get there. And there is always a split, always. There's always a place in between where the dog can do it and can't. Um, and that's the place that you want to be. So know that this is always the right answer, is back up and train it. The right answer is not cover the crate, give the dog a Kong, give the dog a raw bone. The right answer is back up and train it and do not put your dog in a context where they're going to practice the behavior. The second you decide to fix this, you can't keep practicing it because the more you practice it, the worse it is. So if you decide to fix it, you cannot keep practicing it. And that might mean that you stop doing agility for a little while while you, while you build it back up. And it might mean that you're just going to crate out of the car and you're going to let it go and you're going to pick your battles and you're going to deal with this next time when you get a puppy. Um, but you would just, you have to get out of the pattern of it. And your answer is always find the place where they can be successful and where you can reinforce and build up from that place. That's always the right answer. So now I'm going to hop over and do some Patreon questions. So like I mentioned, you guys can all join uh, patreon.com slash cogdogradio if you're interested in me answering your specific questions on air. So the first one is um, the username is Nisa and Hari. And they say, advice to trainers who struggle with the fact that their older dogs were trained with an underdeveloped skill set. To provide a bit more clarity, dogs that were trained at a time when there were still many important puzzle pieces missing from the whole picture. How you may have experienced this over the years and what you've done to undo error slash implement improvement as a trainer. So I think that we will always experience this. So there's foundation that I, that Felix has, who's my younger dog. He's four that Iggy didn't have. She's 10. And when I get another dog, eventually it'll be the same, the same deal. That dog will know things that Felix didn't get the benefit of, because if we are learning and growing, then that's always going to be the case. And I always want to be learning and growing. But what I want to reiterate or iterate in the first place is that they can still learn even if they're a little bit older. So the foundation ship never sails. Okay, it's always here. You can always revisit it and you can always go back and train. So Iggy has marker skills that she did not have originally because my marker training has improved. Iggy also has... Um, she, you know, yes, I'll get frustrated occasionally in training that she doesn't know something that Felix knows, but I don't get frustrated at her because I realized that that was just, I didn't teach her that. Okay. So I, and then I'll break it out and I will teach it to her. And it's really fun to teach those foundational skills. When she was young, she also, I was a pretty novice 
clicker trainer. And so she would get really frustrated immediately in any kind of shaping session because I sucked at it when she learned it. Um, and I'm pretty good at it now. And so she, just by me getting good at it, she learned how to not be frustrated and not basically she would bark at me um, anytime I tried to train with a clicker because of her history of frustration. And just through me getting better and improving my skills, that went away. So sometimes it's, it's actual behaviors that I didn't train and I can go in and train those things. But a lot of the time you're frustrated because your skill set um, is improving and the dog is still kind of learning that your skill set is improving. So that's another thing that I would uh, pay attention to. Great question. Uh, next one is from Michaela. They say, best way of introducing a puppy to a Kong. Do you start them off with the frozen one? Do you start with the thawed one? Um, introduce frozen over time. You know, do you use the soft puppy Kongs, the pink and blue rubber Kongs, or the classic? You know, how do we introduce? And um, always, this is kind of, again, the same as everything. Start where they can be successful. A lot of puppies will not work on a frozen Kong because it's too hard. So in which case, in, in order to teach them the magic of Kongs, you might need to give them a Kong that's not frozen. The topple is also easier to eat from than a Kong in general. So if they need to learn about eating out of a hard rubber toy, the topple is a good place to start. I like to get it frozen as quickly as possible because then it takes longer for them. But if they're going to eat half of it and leave the other half kind of in the bottom, that's difficult for us to then clean out and it's kind of annoying. So until they will eat it all, I don't give it to them frozen. As far as which Kongs do I use, um, I haven't had any problems using the classic or even the black Kongs with puppies. They're not hard enough to actually cause any problems. The puppy Kongs, quote unquote, are softer as well as the senior Kong is kind of the same. Uh, I have several of those. They're also fine. They do break down easier and sooner than the other ones. So now, pretty much when I'm buying Kongs, I only buy the red or the black now because uh, they hold up the best. And that's that's kind of what I'm interested in. But I do use the puppy Kongs a lot just because I have them um, and they might not be tough enough for my adult dogs. But I don't actually think it's necessary. So excellent question. Thank you, Michaela. And we're going to wrap it up with a question from Ashley Clark, which to be fair, disclaimer, this could be a full episode <laughs> and it might be later, but let me answer it now. So Ashley says the balance is a verb episode was great for helping me decide what to teach, but now I need help with how specifically choosing a method or protocol. If I have a leash reactive dog, do I do lat, bat, lad, etc.? And these are all acronyms for different training protocols. Um, I have access to so many great resources and techniques. I spend more time worrying about what to do than just doing it. Any tips for choosing the quote unquote right protocol for different situations, goals, and issues? Ashley, I'm glad you asked this question and understand that in this age of information, in, in this current stage of life where we have endless access to information, a lot of people feel that way. A lot of people feel paralyzed. And the truth is that solid training principles never change. So whether you utilize one person's fancy spin on something or another person's fancy spin, you will not be successful unless you actually understand the underlying um, 
operant conditioning principles behind what you're doing. So if you're going to use, you know, one of those processes for working through leash reactivity, you still need to understand what is the dog doing under what circumstances and what is what would I like the dog to do instead and what's my reinforcement strategy? That's all you ever actually need to know is what's the dog doing under what circumstances what would I like them to do instead under those circumstances? And what's my reinforcement strategy? And then you go from there on making it happen. There is no magic in training. So a technique like I'm just going to use bat uh, behavior adjustment training because I'm the most familiar with it of the things that you mentioned. I'm familiar with the other two too uh, as well, but um, let me talk about bat for a second. So bat is basically just good antecedent arrangement. It's just good handling of a reactive dog in a situation. And so if you still don't understand the operant conditioning principles underlying, you still may not be successful with it. So in bat, the dog is generally, I think what stands it apart is the dog is generally given space from the trigger as a reinforcer, Um, but is always, you know, the, the underlying philosophy of it is that the dog never goes over threshold, that the dog is always kept in kind of a safe zone where they learn to feel more comfortable with other dogs. I'm still going to say that occasionally you're going to push your dog over threshold and occasionally, and you need to have a plan for that. And that occasionally you're going to have situations where, um, you maybe can't carry out the protocol exactly as you want. And so you have to still understand what is the dog doing under what circumstances, what would I rather he do? And what's my reinforcement strategy? So that's all you really need to know. There is no right protocol. As my friend Amy likes to say, everything works. You just have to do it right. (laughs) Um, So I would choose what you're comfortable with and then you'd be tracking your progress. Um, I did a whole episode on keeping records. If you're not tracking your progress, you won't know if it's working. And if you don't know if it's working, you don't know if it's the right way to go. So for me, I no longer, um, I'm no longer interested so much in picking up a specific protocol. Instead, I just look at it as what is the dog doing that I'd like to change? What are the circumstances under which he's doing it? And what would I like him to do instead? And how's my reinforcement? What's my reinforcement strategy for getting this done? Okay, so that's all I ever want to know rather than trying to use a quote unquote method. I just want to use good operant conditioning principles. And um, they those always speak for themselves. Um, and so if you wanted to incorporate some methods or protocols that you've learned, do that, but keep your records, know if it's working, Don't be afraid to throw it out if it's not. Um, And so that's, I think, you know, at its core, what's misunderstood in dog training is a lot of people, you know, they want to pick up a book and go, okay, here's the method for like, I've got a book for training running contacts. Um, There's, it's a method for quote unquote, for training running contacts. But if I don't understand the operant conditioning principles underlying it, and if I don't understand exactly the behavior that I'm after under what circumstances and how I'm going to reinforce, the method isn't going to work for me. Whereas it is working for the woman who wrote the book because she understands all of those things. So 
I think rather than attaching yourself to a method or a protocol, attach yourself to good scientific solid operant conditioning principles and go from there. So thank you patrons very much for your questions. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe in the podcast app of your choice. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, being a part of the CogDoc Radio community, and getting access to all kinds of extras, head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio to become a patron.